talking this morning about the secret of contentment, the secret of contentment. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 13. The letter to the Hebrews, chapter 13, we're going to begin reading in verse 5 in just a moment. The secret of contentment. We just finished a series last week. For the next several weeks, we're going to look at some topics that I believe the Lord wants us to give careful attention to as a church family for the next few weeks. So we're going to focus today on contentment. If you found your place, I want to encourage you just to follow along with me as I begin to read Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When the writer of Hebrews wrote those words, he's writing to a people who were experiencing, beginning to experience persecution. This particular group had suffered the loss of some of their things. They, in chapter 10, I think verse 30, 33, somewhere in there, their, their stuff had been plundered because they were Christians. And they knew it was going to get worse and that it could get to the point where they might have to lose their lives, shed blood because of their faith in Christ. And the way the letter is written, most scholars see, and, and as we studied it as a group of men a couple years ago, this, this congregation or this group of people had every reason to expect that things were going to get really bad, and so they had a decision to make. This was a defining moment in their lives, and were they going to step into it and trust God and be faithful to God, or were they going to shrink back? You know, you can shrink back as a believer, and you're still a believer. But you lose something. You miss something when that moment of opportunity comes and God says, trust me, go forward, do this, and you shrink back. And that's where these people were. And so this letter is written to them, and, and in relationship to their material possessions, the writer of the Hebrews is trying to encourage them to take a whole different attitude towards their things, to take a totally different perspective so that the loss of their stuff would not be as, as great a problem, a disaster, as they anticipated that it would be. And maybe that's where you are this morning. You're struggling because of some need that you have, something that is not there and you need it to be there. It could be physical, it could be related to health, it could be material, it could be circumstantial, but for you, this is not a hypothetical situation. This is where you are, and, and the Scripture is saying for you to be content even in this moment, and you're wondering, how, how is that possible? Does God really care about me? Is He going to come through for me? Is He going to take care of me? You know, our nation has embedded in the Declaration of Independence three assumptions, inalienable rights that the writers, the framers of the Declaration believe that every human being possessed, the right to life, the right to liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. 
And so even embedded in our national documents, we have this idea that happiness is not something that lives here in me. It's something that's out there that I have to pursue. And, and our whole society is wired around this pursuit of happiness. The latest court decisions that have been made about marriage and other things have been framed about my right to be happy, my right to do things the way that I want them to be done. All of our marketing is based that way. Buy my product and your need will be satisfied. If you don't buy my product, well, you need to. There's something missing in your life, something that's wrong, something that's broken. Let me give you a, a, a simple illustration of that. I could have used something else, but it would have been more convicting. I brought this bag of Lay's potato chips. This belongs in my pantry, and uh, so no one take it after church. Okay? What is their motto? What is their slogan? You can't, you can't eat just one. You see, you can't be satisfied with one. It takes what? One more. you got to have one more. And so this morning as we focus on contentment, we are got to understand that in context, you and I live in a nation, we live in a society that tells you over and over again the messages that you receive is that you don't have enough, you can't possibly be happy with where you are, what you have right now. And so how can you be content? First, we're going to break this, these verses up just phrase by phrase. How can you be content? First, stop loving more. Stop loving more. The very first phrase of verse 5 says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Your conduct is your way of life. And he's saying, let it be the exact opposite of a life marked by covetousness. And in this case, the word that's translated covetousness in the New King James, almost every other translation, it's translated as the love of money. How many of y'all have that in your Bible? The love of money. Okay, I'm just seeing who brought their Bible. No, that's, I'm just kidding. Let your conduct be without covetousness. And so covetousness is translated in most Bibles as a love for money. Now, what is it about the love for money that poses such a problem for the believer? Well, we don't have to guess. The apostle tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, he says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So is money the problem? No. What's the problem? The love of money. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So it's not the money that's bad. Money can actually be very good. It puts food on the table. It meets needs. It funds missions. It, um, we, we, we need money. And in our culture, in our society, money by itself is not bad. It is the love of money. It's the belief that money... Having more than what you have is the key to your happiness. The key to your personal security is always having more. And Paul's telling Timothy that the problem with that mindset is that it never delivers. It never delivers security. It never delivers satisfaction. It never brings happiness. In fact, he tells us it delivers two other things. He says... Because of the love of money being the root of all kinds of evil, he says it's delivered first. Some have strayed from the faith. It undermines your faith. Worrying about having enough, pursuing more. 
He said it undermines faith. We're going to see how in just a moment, but the essence of it is I'm not trusting God anymore. I'm trusting in what this thing can give me, this thing called more. He tells us it also delivers this. It says that they had pierced themselves through with many sorrows. What does that mean? It means it makes them miserable. Now, some people have plenty of money, and they're happy. Some people have no money, and they're happy. So it's not, it's not just how much you have that causes the issue. But for some, because of their attitude towards money, the love of money, the desire for more, it makes them miserable. And some of you this morning are miserable because you think you don't have enough money. Some of you are miserable. You're down, discouraged, maybe even depressed because you didn't get something that you wanted. And it didn't happen the way that you wanted it to happen. And, um, and it goes back to your attitude towards more. So what should be our attitude towards money? What should be your attitude towards money and material possessions? Here's a statement I want you to think about. There's a difference between holding things. And I'm going to call that ownership. There's a difference between holding things, ownership, and handling things. I'm going to call that stewardship. You know, when if I own something, I control it. I've got to take care of it. I've got to protect it. But if he owns it, then I'm just taking care of his stuff. And it's not mine. And it's all his. So that attitude towards stuff, ownership versus stewardship, affects my life in almost every area. For example, how you approach buying things is affected by this. If I believe that I'm the owner, then I'm the one that makes the decisions of whether I buy this or whether I buy that. If he's the owner, then I have no right to make that decision. It is his decision, and I have to pray about it and make that decision in light of what he wants me to do. Some years ago when we had little ones at home, um, y'all remember what a VCR is? We still have somebody in my house, I won't mention her name, who says, oh, we got to tape that show tonight. We don't even have a tape player in the house. And, uh, but we still think in terms of recording as taping something. And, um, and it just doesn't happen that way. So anyway, the kids were little, and I thought, you know, having little ones, it would be really cool to have one of those VCRs where I could put a tape in there, record some cartoon or something, and play it for them. I thought, that's what little kids need. And it gives mom a break, gives dad a break, park them in front of that. I thought this was genius. And so I saw one at the store, and I had looked at them for a while. I thought I was being a good shopper. I shopped around, looked at different stores. And, um, and, and I just did not feel good about buying one. But one day I just sort of caved. You know, I looked at it. It was on sales, a bargain. You know what that means. It means buy it now. And, uh, and so I caved and I bought it. And I brought it home. And, and even as I walked out of the store, I got to tell you, I felt bad already. And I drove all the way home with it. And I thought, you know, kids are really going to like this. And I put that box on the table. And y'all know what conviction is? You know, when God says, that wasn't right, son. I felt it. I felt it intensely. And I couldn't keep it. And so I grabbed the receipt and I took that VCR box with the equipment back to the store and got my money back. I had no liberty to buy it. I had not prayed about it. 
The Lord reminded me I'd not prayed about it. He'd not given me permission to spend that money on that thing. About four months later, Christmas came and grandparents bought one for our family because they thought the little kids needed one. And uh, praise the Lord for grandparents, right? And uh, it didn't cost, you know how much that one cost me? Zero. Nada. So what I had done, I just was obedient to the Lord. And it wasn't that, you know, the fact that he gave me a VCR and I didn't have to buy it, that's not the point I'm making. The point is, we have to, if he's the owner of everything, I have no right to make those decisions. How do you react to losing things? Losing things will reveal your attitude towards things. Sometimes we lose stuff and we're just, we're just devastated. And I can understand if somebody experiences a, a total loss, a house fire or something like that, it surely can understand because there's precious things that are lost. But, but when we are devastated, we, get, we lose things, we lose people, we lose spouses, we lose family members. I mean, we're not talking about little stuff. What happens when you lose something if you're the owner of stuff? Then, then those things were taken away from you. What happens when you lose something if you're simply handling things? And whatever I have is a gift for a season, and it's taken away. Well, I can say, you know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, praise the Lord. Uh, one time when Rachel, our oldest daughter, was little, she had a figurine of Minnie Mouse. It was about that tall. It was hard. It wasn't a soft, plush thing. It was just a hard toy. And she slept with it. She loved that little Minnie Mouse thing. Uh, she wasn't very old. She maybe was two years old, three years old. She was talking and ambulatory. And um, so somewhere in that vein. And one day, she lost it. Now, we only lived in a one-bedroom apartment at the time, so she lost it. I got this phone call at the church. Um, Gail says, Don, Rachel needs to talk to you. I said, okay. Daddy, I lost Minnie Mouse. And I knew that was a call to go home. I couldn't stay at the office. This was my firstborn two-year-old daughter. She had lost Minnie Mouse. And so I went home, and I'm praying on the way home, which was across the street. I'm praying on the way home, and, um, you know, I'm praying the prayer that they teach you in school, and it's a very sophisticated kind of prayer called, Jesus, help me. And so I was praying that prayer, and I get in there, and she's about that high, so I get down to her level, and I'm talking to her, and I say, I say Rachel, I'm so sorry you lost your mini mouse. And she said, oh, Daddy, she said, I, I, I need to find it. I said, i tell you what we need to do. I said, uh, said, Rachel, we need to ask God to help us because he knows exactly where that Minnie Mouse is right now. He knows exactly where it is. We don't know. You don't know. But God knows everything. So let's ask the Lord. If we need to find that, if that's something we need to do, let's put that before the Lord and ask him about that. And so we prayed. I tell you what, when you pray about stuff with kids, if you really want movement on an issue, pray about it with little kids. Because the Lord delights to teach children about himself. And it was probably 24 hours. I was at the office again. I get a call. Daddy, God found my Minnie Mouse. And our attitude as a steward, as an owner, affects every area of life, how we handle losses. Let me give you another one. How you make decisions concerning a job. You know, it's not always about more money. Say, well, that, that uh, opportunity has come. If I move from here to that other place, I can make more money. Now, if you're a steward, 
that, that means almost nothing to you. If you're an owner, then that makes sense. I mean, it's a no-brainer. Duh. Same job, new place, more money. You know, got to go. But if you're a steward, you understand that I am not my own. I am bought with a price. I have a calling. God has given me a ministry. This is true of every believer here. And I don't have the right to make a decision about where I go or where I don't go. I don't have the right to make the decision about where I'm going to work or where I'm not going to work. I belong to him. And so I have to ask him. I have to pray about a move or, or, or accepting something like that. Uh, one last one, how you handle windfalls reveals whether you're a steward or an owner. You say, what's a windfall? A windfall is like winning the lottery. Now, if anybody here wins the lottery, uh, don't tell us about it, okay, because Baptists, we don't play the lottery, right? We know that got really silent. You know, we don't do that because we believe that when God gives us funds, if I'm a steward, I can't just go throw it away on a game of chance. I just can't do that, and so I have to be a steward of, of what I possess, plus the statistics and the social effects of gambling are, are well stated elsewhere. We don't need to go into that. But look, there are times where God blesses you. Wealthy relative dies, unexpected proceeds from a sale of something, uh, a tax return, I don't know, and suddenly you have this windfall. That's what I call it. Unexpected blessing. And, and if you're an owner, your thought becomes, what can I do with this? If you're a steward your question becomes, what am I supposed to do with this? I've mentioned a mentor in ministry when I was a younger man, Bob Tremaine. We worked together in Southern California starting new churches. And so we, we helped um, start five churches while I was there. There were 12 in all that were started. And, and as you can imagine, starting new work in a place like Los Angeles takes a lot of money, a lot of resources. And, um, and so we were always praying about God to provide the money for the next thing that, that he was leading us to do. And, and when money would come and answer to prayer, it typically was exactly what we needed. Uh, the Lord doesn't mess around. If you, if you need something and you're praying about that, and it's related to ministry, the advance of the gospel, you can expect him to nail it. And, but there were other times, and I watched this just walking with him, learning from him, there were other times where an unexpected amount of money would come and we had no clue what it was for. We didn't know what it was for. And Bob's first response, that, and I learned this from him, his first response was, Lord, how do you want me to use this money? And I watched more money pass through that man's hands than anybody I've ever known. Because the Lord could trust a steward like that with those kind of resources. So how you handle windfalls reveals whether you're a steward or whether you're an owner. How can you be content? First, you and I have got to stop loving more and thinking the answer is out there and it's more. The second issue in being content is the next phrase, and it's satisfaction is a choice. Satisfaction is a choice. He says, let your conduct be without covetousness, and then he says, be content with such things as you have. And you say, well, Don, what about wants and uh, certain kinds of needs and desires? What do I, what do, I do with that? Uh, how can I be content when I know that there's something that we need? There's a difference between wanting something, needing something, desiring something, and, and it's this big in your life, 
and when it's this big in your life. When it's this big, it's the tail on the dog. You're saying, you know, Lord, this is something that, that I think that we need. Uh, this is something that uh, I think is going to be important for our family, and, it's, and so forth. And so what do you do with it when it's like that? You take it to the Lord. You leave it with the Lord. You trust Him. But when it's like this, when it's dominating your life, I cannot be happy unless this is done, this need is met, this problem is resolved this way, then suddenly you're the tail and the big need is the dog. And it's wagging you. And at that point, it's out of control. And that's what he's saying here. He says, be content with such things as you have. Let's break that down. The word content, be content, means to be sufficient or filled. It's like you're an empty vessel, and, and at that moment, you don't need anything else. You're satisfied. And when he says be content, it's passive, so something is making you content. With such things as you have describes the things that are around you, circumstances, your immediate possessions, what you have around you at that moment. He says, let whatever is there fill you up. Let whatever is there satisfy you. Let whatever is there be enough. The writer says you can be content in this situation, that it's possible, but it's a choice. God desires that you be satisfied right now. And I'm going to point out a couple areas where I believe that that is true based on this passage. God desires that you be satisfied right now. So because it's a choice, be content with such things as you have. It's not something I have to wait for. Now, I may be waiting on an answer to prayer, but I don't have to wait to be content. It is commanded. You know the essence of the last commandment of the Ten Commandments about not coveting your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's servants, your neighbor's animals, all that kind of stuff. The whole essence of not coveting is meaning that there's nothing in you that's wanting. I mean, the only way you can covet is on the inside. You don't covet by doing something. You covet because you're desiring something. And this is an answer to that. He says, be content. It's just the opposite of that. And he wants you to do it right now in two areas. First, with what you have. Be content right now with what you have. Now, I want to read a passage of Scripture. The reference is in your notes. But I want to read 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, godliness, we've talked about it before, but godliness literally means to stand well in front of somebody of importance. In other words, it's, it's giving proper respect it's a proper response to someone in authority. So the President of the United States walks in. I may fundamentally disagree or dislike th that person or whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is, it's the President of the United States. What do we do? We stand up. And so the essence of the word underlying the English word godly means to stand well. And so a person who is a godly person recognizes who God is, recognizes the presence of God in his life, and lives his or her life with respect to who he is. Honoring the Lord, recognizing who he is. Now, this is what Paul tells Timothy. He said, Godliness, learning how to live in the presence of God, 
24-7 with contentment, being satisfied with where I am at all times. He said, that's great gain. He said, that's a great place to be. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out, and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. This is the guy that sits in a jail cell. He has absolutely nothing, and he's singing hymns at midnight. Be content right now with what you have. Let me give you another one. Be content right now with where you are. With where you are. How many people I meet and talk with who are dissatisfied with where they are, where they live, the marriage that they're in, the job that they have, the the circumstances that they're in. Some of them for good reason. It might be a bad marriage. Some of them have poor health. Some of them are dealing with difficulties at work. It's understandable, but they have no satisfaction in their life, no sense of contentment. In contrast to that, one of the things that I think is most helpful, Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7 says this, For exaltation, some translations say promotion, For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. What does that mean? It means that if I don't get that promotion, it's okay. If I'm a steward, if I'm simply a recipient of everything that God gives to me, it's okay. Because God is in control, and I can trust Him that if I didn't get that thing that I thought I had to have, it's okay because He's in charge and promotion comes from Him nowhere else. I may say, well, they just didn't like me, or I may say that that person, you know, got in the way of, you know, that promotion. And, you know, we can look at all kinds of situations in life that way. But I've got to be coming to a place where it doesn't matter what's happening around me, ultimately. The promise of God's Word is there's a way for you and me to be content at that moment. And if I'm not being content, I've taken my eyes off of Him. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, you may just want to jot this in the margin. Philippians 4, 11 to 13. The Apostle Paul tells us the secret of commitment, the heart of it, He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. I have known both how to abound and to suffer need. You know, when I read that and fully understood it for the first time, it it was revolutionary to me. Paul said, I've learned how to suffer need. You know what that means? It means I need something, I don't have it, and I'm suffering. We have in our minds that God always gives us what we need. And yet Paul says there are times in his experience where he needed something and it wasn't there. It was creating a hardship. And he said, I've learned how to suffer need. And what's the secret? Well, he tells us, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The indwelling Christ, I have him. Well, that's the secret to being abased, to abounding, to being filled, to being hungry. No matter what my circumstances, Christ 
So this leads to the third way to find contentment. How can you be content? First, stop loving more. Two, choose to be satisfied with what you have. And then three, fullness is found in fellowship with God. Fullness is found in fellowship with God. Look at the last phrase of verse 5. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you see the internal logic of the verse? He says, don't let covetousness mark your life, the desire for more. He says, be content, satisfied, filled up with what you have. Why? For he himself has said something. God has said something. If you understand what God has said, he said, then you can be content. Now, what is it that God has said? For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I've got I to gotta peel back the, uh, the English for a moment, and I want us to look at the original language. I just want you to listen, okay? In English, if I use a double negative in a sentence, that is typically incorrect, right? Uh, I never not want to do that again. You know, we don't say things like that. We don't never say things like that. Okay, double negative. But in Greek, that is a way of emphasizing the negative. And this verse is, is wonderful in, um, in Greek, not in English. And here's what he says. There's a double negative in the first part of the sentence. There's a triple negative in the third. Are you ready for this? He says, for he himself has said, I will never, I will never leave you. Double negative. And then the third triple negative comes next. He says, and I will never, I will never, I will never forsake you. I will never, never leave you. I will never, never, never forsake you. I don't know why the translators don't bring out double and triple negatives. I guess it's hard to read in English. And, um, but it's there. Do you see the point the writer's making? He's saying that if you have the Lord in your life, if you have Christ indwelling you, if you understand what he himself has said, that I am always with you, I don't care what's happening in your life. You can be like Paul sitting in a jail cell. You can be at the top of the heap uh, economically. It doesn't matter. He said you can be satisfied. Why? For he himself has said, I will never, never leave you. I will never, never, never forsake you. In Psalm 23, verse 1, the psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's saying the same thing. Because when he's your shepherd, he's in control. Sheep aren't too bright. Sheep just do what the shepherd directs them to do. They're hungry, he takes them to green pastures. They're thirsty, he takes them to still waters. They won't drink from running water. They've got to see their reflection. They get scared by running water. So what does he do for you and me? He takes us to a place of refreshment where we don't have to be afraid. The Lord is my shepherd. When the Lord is my shepherd, I can trust him for what I need. He's in control of my stuff. It's his stuff. And everything that I have is just a gift on loan from the owner. And I'm there to handle it. I'm there to take care of it. A lack of contentment is saying to the Lord, Lord, you don't know what I need. You don't know what I need to take care of me. You're not enough for me. And the, David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If here this morning you're struggling with a lack of contentment, you need to know that the secret or the fullness or the satisfaction that God wants to give you is not out there. 
You're going to find it here in a relationship with Him. So how can you be content? First, stop loving more. Secondly, choose to be satisfied with what you have. Thirdly, find your satisfaction in Him. And then fourthly, apply His promise to your circumstances. Apply His promise to your circumstances. Again, you've got to look at the logic here of the verse. He says, don't let covetousness mark your life. Stop loving more. And then he goes to the next phrase, but in contrast to that way of life, be content with such things as you have. Be satisfied with what you have. Let what you have satisfy you. And then he says, why can we do this? For he himself has made this amazing promise. He's a promise-keeping God. He says, I will never, never leave you. I will never, never, never forsake you. So God has said this. It's the foundation for my contentment. But I've got to do something. I've got to take the promise of God, and I've got to apply it to my life. So that's number four. Apply his promise to your circumstances. Now, what does that look like? Well, he breaks it down. The first phrase, so we may boldly say, we've got to talk to ourselves. Talk to your soul is what it says. Talk to your soul. God has said this, so we may boldly say. Well, who are we talking to? Us, ourselves. I'm not telling you what you ought to say. I'm not telling you something. I'm talking to myself. How many of y'all talk to yourself? Don't raise your hand and I'm not looking. We're supposed to talk to ourselves. There are things we should tell ourselves. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, the psalmist writes. There are things we should tell ourselves to do. And you know what? You're telling yourself something all the time. You're reaching conclusions about God based on your circumstances all the time. You're, you're telling yourself things. And you've got to understand, you've got a real enemy who wants you to think against God. He wants to, you to think that God is holding out on you. You know, the very essence of the first temptation was about this issue of contentment. Has God said you can't eat of every tree of the garden? What's he trying to do? He's trying to create discontent in her. God's holding out on you. God's not giving you something that's rightfully yours. We've got to talk to our soul. We've got to tell ourselves the next one. We've got to recall the truth. Talk to your soul and then recall the truth. So we may boldly say what? The Lord is my helper. The God who says, I will never, never leave you. I will never, never forsake you. That sounds like a helper to me, doesn't it? So we can say to ourselves, the Lord is my helper. And that's the truth. So when I'm in trouble, I may need to tell myself that. The Lord is my helper. When I feel like the bottom's about to drop out and there's no hope for me, the Lord is my helper. The worst that anything anybody can do to me is send me to heaven. And that brings us to the third thing. Talk to your soul, recall the truth, and make a conscious decision. He says, I will not fear. What can man do to me? He reaches a conclusion. Tell yourself this. The Lord is my helper. So what can I fear? What am I going to be afraid of? I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The worst thing that they can do is send me to heaven. Bring it. It sets you free. The English Reformation in the 17th century was preceded by a period of intense persecution in the late 1500s under Queen Mary. She was called Bloody Mary because she took Protestants and she killed them. 
She killed so many of them, they wrote a book of nothing but martyr accounts called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And when the Puritans came to this country and settled New England, they had their Bible and they had Fox's Book of Martyrs. And there's a story in there about two particular reformers who lost their lives or gave their lives for the truth of the gospel. One was named Hugh Latimer, the other was Nicholas Ridley. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. They were arrested, they were persecuted for their belief, for their faith, and then they were burned at the stake. And when they burned them at the stake, they, they tied one to the stake, and then back to back on the other side of the stake was his partner. So these two men, Latimer and uh, Ridley, are back to back at the stake. And so they're standing there, and, and they're about to die. And all they got to do is sort of recant Protestantism. You know, they just got to say, hey, you know, you guys are right, we were wrong. Salvation's not by grace through faith, all that kind of stuff. They don't do that. And so they're standing there at the stake, and they're literally, they're lighting the fire at their feet. And as the flames begin to come up, Latimer hollers out to Ridley. This is what he says. Listen to this. Think about it. Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. For today, by God's grace, we will light a candle in England that will never be put out. That's mind-boggling to me. They're about to die, and they're content in the Lord. They're about to die, and they have such confidence in the shepherd, such confidence in the God who said, I will never, never leave you, never, never, never forsake you. I mean, some people could say, I'm about to be burned. Where are you, God? They don't do that. They said, God's doing something big here. We're going to start something big today. Most of us will look at it and say, it all ends here. They say, no, something big is going to happen. You know, how different would it be if you and I looked at our circumstances, and it may look dark to an outsider, it may look terrible to an outsider, but what if we looked at it and we said, you know, God has said, I will never, never leave you, I will never, never forsake you, so I can say, the Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. You see how the people receiving this letter would be encouraged by that. They've lost a bunch of their stuff already. They might lose their lives next. And they have such a sense of the presence of God available to them that even in the darkest moment, just like Latimer and Ridley, they could step back and say, you know, when it's really dark, because he's the shepherd, because he's with us, because he always has a plan, because he doesn't waste any human life, because of who he is, God's about to do something really big. And I am satisfied in him. I am content in him. If I have him, the giver, I have everything else that he gives. Maybe this morning you feel like you're about to die. And for you, this message is not hypothetical. You're facing dire circumstances. You've you're facing tremendous need. You're facing problems that are bigger than your capacity to address them. And you're wondering, where is God? Where is God? You're not even thinking about contentment, being satisfied right now in what you're facing. And I just want to encourage you, if you're that person, 
and you're facing those kinds of moments even as I speak, can I encourage you just to take God's word and say, I'm going to trust what he has said. And he has said he's with me. So, Lord, I'm going to trust that you are with me in this moment. And I'm going to trust that everything the Bible says about you is true. And so because I'm trusting you in this moment, I really have everything that I need. Statement of faith, raw faith, but I have everything that I need in this moment because I have you. Would you do that? If that's where you are this morning, if that's what you're experiencing, in just a moment when we stand and sing, you may just need to bow your head, talk to the Lord like that. You can come and kneel at the front. Maybe there's somebody that you know that's under a crushing weight in their circumstances, and they really need the kind of liberty that this scripture describes, and you just want to pray with them or you want to pray for them. I encourage you to come and use the altar for that purpose. If you're a Christian and maybe you're not experiencing uh, suffering or hardship or difficulty, you're just kind of going along in life, doing the things that you think you're supposed to do. You're being a responsible person and and all that kind of stuff. You're trying to be a good husband, trying to be a good wife. But you know, there's a step beyond that. There's a thing called contentment, real contentment. It's not turning off what you feel. It's actually turning it up. And saying, I've just kind of been going through a mind-numbing experience in my life at this point. I'm just doing the next thing i got to do. I've been so busy. I'm tired. But I'm going to be faithful. And you're just doing that. But can I challenge you to go to the next level? He wants you to be satisfied. He wants you to be full. He wants you to be feeling rich. He wants you to be content. And he wants to do that by giving you himself. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to know that you have three great enemies that are attacking you right now. The world, this world system, of values that telling you always you don't have enough and you got to do more to be important or significant to achieve. You have a world system, the world. Then there's the flesh, and that's that part of you that's in rebellion against God. Every human being struggles with it. It's inherited sin. It's a sin nature, and the flesh is working against you at this moment. It will draw you into paths that are going to lead to your own destruction. The world, the flesh, and then the devil. You have a personality, a fallen angel, a true enemy who hates you, who doesn't want you to hear God, doesn't want you to follow him. He's a, he's a thief. He wants to steal from you. He's a liar. He wants you to believe things about yourself and God that aren't true. He's a murderer. Ultimately, he wants to take your life. All of these enemies are arrayed at your soul. Let me tell you, there's only one person who can deliver you from the enemies of your soul, and that's Jesus Christ. When he died for you on the cross, he died for your sins, everything that separated you from a holy God. And he took the punishment your sins deserved, and he died in your place. You can't die for your sins. You're a sinner. But he was a sinless, sweet, precious son of God, and he died in your place. And the Bible says when he rose from the grave, he conquered death. He conquered Satan. He conquered the flesh. And when you put your trust in Christ, just blind, simple, full trust in Jesus and say, Jesus, save me. 
Jesus, change me. Jesus, I'm going to put my trust in you for the rest of my life. I'm putting my trust in you. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I can give testimony of that, and there's countless others here who can testify that Jesus lives and he wants to change you because he's changed us. And if you've never trusted Christ this morning, I want to invite you to come. If you have questions about what's involved, I'll share scripture with you. There'll be another pastor here. He'll, he'll share scripture with you. But we would be delighted to coach you and to guide you in a process of putting your trust in Christ for eternity. And then you can experience the joy of knowing a God who says, I will never, never leave you and never, never forsake you. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Father, what a glorious truth we have looked at today in your word. That you came not only to set us free from sin's power and its penalty of death, but you also died to give us a life right now that's worth living a life that's abundant, a life that's full, a life that's rich, and it comes from within. Father, I pray for that brother or sister today who's hungry to know that abundant life. This morning, I just pray they would turn to you like a child, like a lost sheep, just coming to you and saying, I want you to be my shepherd from now on. I'm tired of trying to run my life, Lord. I want you to be my shepherd. And I thank you that you're always with me. Not for one moment have you left me behind or abandoned me. And Father, I pray for that one who's ready to trust Jesus. Give them courage. Enable them not to worry about what anybody else will say or think. Enable them, Father, to publicly put their trust in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray.